Hey, good morning, everyone. So good to see you in here. For those of you watching online on YouTube, Facebook, uh, newlife.nyc. My name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Fellowship Church. And if this is your first time in the building or first time watching online, so glad that you are with us. At the end of our service, I'll be downstairs in the lobby area with some of our pastors and would love to meet you before you head out. And so if we've never met before or if we haven't seen each other in some time, uh, please make your way to me. I'd love to uh, chat with you briefly. I'm also excited to announce that uh, we have uh, longtime New Lifers, Rick and Gigi Harner. They're in town with their family. And so um, give it up for Rick and Gigi. I think we have a picture of them up here. Throw that photo of the family up there on the screen for me. Rick and Gigi are New Life staff who serve in the Philippines since 2006. Uh, Rick started a holistic uh, community tutoring program called G127, which comes out of Genesis 127. Uh, and the motto is, never underestimate a child created in the image of God. Over the last number of years, hundreds of children have gone through their tutoring program, and they've done some remarkable work. Uh, Dr. Gigi Harn is also a psych psychotherapist, a counselor, and has worked with uh, lots of folks in the community offering all kinds of different uh, services and care. They're in town for some time. They're going to be in the yellow room, and so if you know Rick and Gigi, uh, stop by and say hello to them. Or if you're interested in the work that's happening uh, in the Philippines, uh, make sure you say hello to them as, as well. Uh, we just finished a series a couple of weeks ago called God and Our Bodies, and today we are stepping into a new summer series is going to take us through the end of our, of our summertime called the Lexicon of Faith, a, a fresh look at ancient words. Uh, a lexicon is really a vocabulary of a particular uh, subject, and, and, and lots of different subjects have a lexicon. Baseball has a lexicon, you know, uh, hitting for the cycle, a strikeout, uh, the Mets lose again. I mean, this is part of just the regular lexicon of baseball. Uh, and I say that as a Mets fan. Uh, politics has a lexicon. And of course, spirituality, faith, religion has a lexicon as well. And what I know to be true about my own life and about many people, it's very easy to take words for granted, that we know what they mean because we've heard them for so long or we've used them for so long that we know exactly what they mean and the fullness of these words. And yet, if we are not careful, we could take, make lots of assumptions about the words that we hold true to uh, about the Christian faith and actually misuse them and misunderstand them in ways that can bring about lots of damage and hurt in our world. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to focus on various words, and here are the words that we're going to be journeying through over the course of the summertime. We're going to look at the word gospel, and grace, and sin, and faith, and the word holy, and blessed, confession, salvation. We're going to look at these words because this is what I understand about these words about my own life. I could really have some uh, conviction about what these words mean because I've heard them for a long time, and upon closer inspection, I realize, oh, I've, I've missed some angles here. I've missed some facets that are really important for me to think about as it relates to these words. And today, we're going to focus on the word gospel. We're going to focus on the word gospel because to get the gospel wrong is to get everything else wrong. And so we're going to start with the gospel. What do we mean when we say gospel? What does the New Testament mean 
when it says gospel. What does the word of God mean when it says gospel? And so we're gonna look at Romans chapter one. So you can take out your device, follow on the screen, open up your Bible. Romans chapter one, we're gonna look at a few passages from verse one through verse 17. And, uh, and I'll spend some time with this majestic uh, portion from Holy Scripture. Romans chapter one, beginning at verse number one, hear the word of the Lord. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who asked who his earthly life was a descendant of David, And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 9. God whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Ooh, that's some good stuff right there. And so we're gonna take this thing apart and figure out what do, when we say gospel, what does the New Testament mean by that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gospel, which is good news to those who believe. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Have you ever come across a word that you thought you knew the meaning of it or you thought you were using it in its proper context? And then someone said to you, you know, that's not the right word for that context. There are many words that as someone who works with words over the years, I have used out of context. I have misused words. I have thought that the word meant one thing, but it in fact meant another. And by the grace of God and uh, my wife, uh, just being reminded of the proper use of words has been really important. But this goes back to at least my earliest memory, which was in the third grade. In the third grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Joseph, a wonderful teacher, and I remember one day distinctly, distinctly, and I better watch my words today, uh, distinctly where she wrote on the board something. She said, this assignment, or she wrote it this way, this assignment due on March 15th. Due on March 15th. Well, due was spelled D-U-E, due on March 15th. In my third grade brain, I was still catching up to everyone else, I thought to myself, hmm, it looks like she misspelled the word do, D-O, and so I was the only student in the class who actually started the assignment on March 15th. I remember just walking into the classroom and everyone had the assignment 
completed. It was done, and I discovered at that moment, oh, there is a difference between D-U-E, do, it was due that day, as opposed to do it on March 15th. And I learned that day that if you don't get words right, it can lead to all kinds of uh, problems in our world. And the same happens across the board with many different words that we use. It's easy to mix up words, words like advise and advise. Words like effect and effect. Words like compliment and compliment. I mean, these words can get pretty complicated, and the ways that we use them often can be misused and misunderstood. It reminds me of that meme in The Princess Bride where the guy says, you know, you keep using that word. It does not mean what you think it means. And this is not just true with related to grammar. It's true as it relates to our relationship with God. There are serious implications for mixing up words, for getting our grammar incorrect. I think about this Rachel Ray magazine cover that says, you know, Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. <laughs> you see that? It missed a couple of commas there. Uh, and so that's a problem. Rachel Ray is cooking her family and her dog. Why is she on television? This is a problem here. Little mistakes can make all the difference in our grammar, and we can mix up words and syntax and phrases to devastating consequences. And this is what we see in our relationship with God, and this word in particular being gospel. It's very easy to get the gospel wrong because we have emphasized some facet of it and have put all of our eggs in that particular angle. And what I want us to see this morning is what God invites us to, to a, a full perspective of what the gospel is. And Paul gives us some good uh, counsel in this letter here. And before we look at Paul's counsel, it's important to name the ways that the gospels that we carry are malformed. I got that phrase. There's a, a New Testament scholar named Matthew Bates who wrote a wonderful book on the gospel. And he talked about the, the various ways that we have malformed understandings of the gospel. That when you think about the gospel, if I gave you a quick assignment, define the gospel. Take out your phone, define the gospel. If I gave you that assignment, I'd imagine that there'd be lots of different definitions of the gospel at this church. Lots of different, some, some complementary, some that are contradictory. And yet, what does it mean when Paul says gospel? And so before I get into a definition of what the gospel is and the implications for our lives, I think it's helpful just to name some of the malformed gospels that we believe. For example, I want to name four of them. First malformed gospel is the go to heaven gospel. That we believe that, many of us often believe that the gospel is the message that when you die, you go to heaven. That that is what Paul preached, that's what Jesus preached, and that's what we are supposed to preach. And with every one of these gospels, there is some truth that we want to hold on to, and at the same time recognize that it falls far short of what the New Testament teaches about what the gospel is. Now, going to heaven, that's pretty wonderful, isn't it? To spend eternity with the living God, that's pretty wonderful. But nowhere in the Bible does it say, Jesus does not preach, if you believe in me, you will go to heaven when you die. That's not the message that the gospel of Jesus proclaims. That's not the message we see in Paul. Now, it's true that those who are in Christ Jesus have already entered into eternal life. This is the book of John. 
We've already tasted, we're already anticipating life with God that will be culminated when we see him face to face. But the gospel primarily is not simply about going to heaven when you die. Now, this is really important because if that is the emphasis that we believe and that we proclaim, it actually becomes justifiable to not pay attention to what's happening around us. In fact, many of us have interpreted Jesus' words in the Our Father to mean this. When Jesus teaches us to pray, we often interpret it as, Lord, get us out of earth into your kingdom in heaven. But Jesus doesn't teach us to pray that. Jesus Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. If the emphasis is explicitly on the afterlife, it becomes justifiable not to care about what's happening in the world today. I think about, I had lunch with someone from our church years ago, and there were just some concerns about why are we talking so much about race and racism and, and, the, and the poor? Shouldn't we just be preaching the gospel? And so I said, help me understand when you say the gospel. And for this person, the gospel was the good news that if you accept Jesus Christ, you go to heaven when you die. And I said, praise God, I believe that. But let's be sure, that is not the gospel that Jesus Christ proclaimed. Is that part of it? Yes, we receive it. But that's not the full gospel. The second malformed gospel that many of us hold on to is the freedom from rules gospel. And the freedom from rules gospel essentially says that there's there's a hyper-emphasis on the grace of God to the point where freedom from rules is really what it's about. In common kind of Christian parlance, what happens is we people say, I'm not about religion, I'm about relationship. And it's a nice phrase. But what many people hold on to that is, is I, I don't really want the constraints of someone telling me what I have to do. I remember in college, I was working for some company, and there was a conversation about spirituality in one of the cubicles next to me, and the person who was having the conversation essentially said uh, words like, uh, I want to have a relationship or a spiritual life that's not about obeying rules. I want to have a spiritual life that's not about obeying rules. Now, what's interesting is the context of that conversation was about the Ten Commandments, which was a very curious statement. Because for me, when I think about the Ten Commandments, that's actually a pretty good indication of a society and a life that's pretty healthy. Because the Ten Commandments says stuff like, don't kill anybody. That's pretty important. (laughs) Don't commit adultery. That's pretty important. Don't steal. Take a break. Have a Sabbath. These are all wonderful things. And they were talking about rules of the Ten Commandments. What that person, I think, was really getting at was, I don't want anyone telling me what to do I want to live my life the way I want to in this kind of relationship with God and what happens when we believe this kind of gospel is that God now becomes an accessory to your life God this is what I want to do I need you to bless it I've already made the decision I need you to bless it what do you want me to do with my life I'm going to decide for myself and I want you to bless it it's the freedom from rules gospel The next gospel that's malformed, and again, some of these gospels have some truth to it, is the stop striving and rest gospel. And I have to say that I'm actually quite sympathetic. I actually like this gospel, the stop striving and rest gospel. And there's lots of truth in this gospel. Jesus Christ is our rest. 
Jesus Christ is where our salvation is to be found. But when I hear the stop striving and rest and I'm in conversation with people, what often happens is the conversation is so restricted to my own life and my own heart. Which, by the way, there's no place in the Bible that says receive Jesus Christ into your heart. There's no verse in the Bible that says that. Now, do we believe that the Holy Spirit lives within us? Of course. But there's no Bible verse that says receive Jesus Christ into your heart. And I think it's really important because it's, lot, it's very easy to have a Christian spirituality that's so focused on my heart and my God and my relationship with Jesus. And what ends up happening is we have a very individualistic, private relationship with God where the gospel is really about me and Jesus. Which, by the way, in the New Testament, there are only maybe two occasions when the word the phrase, my Lord, is used in the New Testament. My Lord. Paul uses it about two times. Fifty-three times in the New Testament, we see the words, our Lord. Our Lord. In other words, Christianity is not this privatized, individualized thing. Christianity is about the, 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 the Lord who reigns over a community that we need one another as well. The fourth gospel, and then I'm going to offer a definition of the gospel, is the improved society gospel. And again, of course, there's truth in this. To follow Jesus Christ is to pay attention to the poor, to pay attention to injustice, to give our lives to improving society, to, to, to seeing uh, the world flourish. But this is what I know to be true. It's very easy to focus so much on the improvement of society, and it's easy to do it without Jesus, without, without submitting our lives to Jesus Christ to his rule, to his lordship. And so if these are the gospels that we believe in, there are many other gospels that we believe, the question is, what is the gospel that the New Testament teaches? And what does it mean for us to say yes to that? And what are the implications for us uh, in the way that we live, in our relationship to God, in our relationship with others? Are you with me? And so I want to offer a definition of the gospel and then look at Romans 1 and explore what I mean by this some more. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and that through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, that means he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he has declared Lord. A new humanity is created and the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Oh, praise the Lord. The kingdom of God has become available in Jesus Christ. You have in Jesus Christ a radical accessibility to God. Jesus Christ has opened the door for us to have fellowship and communion and accessibility to the presence of God. It's the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in him through his life, that is through his teachings, through his death, taking on sin, in his resurrection, letting the world know that sin does not have the last word. He is declared Lord. A new humanity is created. The powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And this is what I believe Paul is getting at in this passage of Scripture. And so what is the gospel? What is the gospel about? Paul lets us know, number one, that the gospel is fundamentally about Jesus. The gospel is not primarily about us. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 and 2 and verse number 9. Paul says, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, 
Verse 9, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son. What does this mean? It means very simply, friends, that Jesus Christ is our good news. Oh, 90% of you missed your opportunity to say amen. I'm going I'm to give you an op- another opportunity. Jesus Christ is our good news. You got it now. In the New Testament, every time Jesus appeared on the scene, the people who were sick, the people who were marginalized, they recognized good news has arrived. When Jesus entered a village, the sick said, good news is here. The blind said, good news is here. The deaf said, good news is here. Those who had dead family members recognized good news is here. And praise was brought forth every time Jesus entered the scene. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our good news. The church is never to be built around any other personality. The church is not to be built around any other thing but Jesus Christ himself because Jesus Christ is our good news. The world is held together because Jesus Christ is holding it together because he is our good news. Everything we need is found in Jesus Christ. This is why I love in the New Testament, the New Testament, you get this sense that the writers, they just can't get enough of Jesus and so they need multiple words and multiple titles and multiple phrases to explain who he is. And sometimes it's just good to read the Bible to be reminded of who Jesus is and why his presence is good news. In the Bible, they call him all kinds of names and all kinds of phrases. And if you don't mind, I know we're in church, but if I could brag about Jesus for a second, if if that's okay with you, can I brag about Jesus for a second? Because the New Testament gives all these words about Jesus. He's known as Savior, Redeemer, Bread of Life, Son of the Living God, the Only Begotten Son. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the head of the church. He's the Almighty God. He's Alpha and Omega. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king. Can I brag about Jesus for a little bit? He is the high priest and he's the perfect sacrifice. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's our mediator, and he's our judge. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the lamb of God, and he's the good shepherd. He's the word of God. He's the fountain of living waters. He's the rock. He's the Messiah. He's the true vine. He's the bridegroom. I'm not done yet. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the bright and morning star. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the king of Israel. He's our Messiah. He's our Christ. He is good news. Somebody say amen. He's our good news. The gospel fundamentally is about Jesus. 
and about his story and about his saving power. And so Paul begins by saying that the gospel is about the son. Not simply what the son can do for us, about the son. Which is why prayer, prayer, when we pray to God, it's often a, 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 an expression of what we believe about Jesus. Because he is our good news. Prayer is often to be a place of just communion with the living God. When I sit down to pray and, and I don't want anything from Jesus, and there's plenty of stuff that I want from Jesus, but there's plenty of times I sit down, I don't want to, I just want to be with Jesus. Not because of what Jesus can give to me, but because of who he is, he is our good news. And if every time we come to Jesus and we go, Lord, I need this and I need that and, and can I get some of this as well, we begin to relate to Jesus as transaction and not as king, not as Lord. But Paul says the gospel is about, number one, he's the son of the living God. He is our good news. And then Paul continues. What is the gospel? Why is it important? What does the gospel do? The gospel is about his son, but secondly, it is the gospel that saves the world. Amen. And this is important because every single human being is looking for salvation. Every single human being is looking for meaning. Every single human being is looking to be enough for fulfillment, for joy, for peace, for happiness. Every single human being is longing to be rescued from something into something else. Isn't this why we, we work and have workaholism? Trying to get the next promotion, the next raise, the next accomplishment, often believing that if I just got this position, my life will be enough. If I just moved into that house, my life would be enough. If I just got married, my life would be enough. If I just got divorced, my life would be enough. <laughs> we always have, if this happens, then I will be enough. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will be saved. But what the gospel reminds us is there's nothing that can rescue you. There's nothing that can transform you. There's nothing that can give you the kind of hope that your soul desperately needs in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the gospel does is it points to our yearnings for something more. This is why Jesus' first words in the gospel of John are to his disciples around who would become his disciples is, what are you searching for? What are you looking for? What do you want? And then after he's resurrected from the dead, we often focus on the last words of Jesus on the cross, but it's interesting to look at the first words of Jesus after he's raised from the dead because the first thing Jesus says to his disciples, much like he said in the beginning of the Gospel of John, is what do you want? What are you longing for? Every single human being, you're longing for something. And you say, if I just had that, and then what happens? You get that. And you realize this thing does not satisfy the way my soul and there's this endless cycle if I just had this if I just had that but Paul lets us know it is the gospel that saves us it is the gospel that truly gives us meaning to life I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation and what followers of Jesus need to understand and what I need to understand is that the gospel is not simply for people who don't believe 
and then have that moment of faith where they believe in Jesus and then everything is just fixed. What I've discovered in my own life is even after trusting in Jesus, I can still look to a whole lot of other things to give me the meaning, the fulfillment that my soul is desperately longing for. And so the gospel is not simply for unbelievers. The gospel is for every single human being, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. It is the gospel that saves us. And so Paul lets us know, number one, the gospel is about the son. Number two, the gospel is what saves the world. And then in a staggering way, number three, what we find in Romans is that it is the gospel that establishes a new family, a new humanity. Look what Paul does in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, when we read that, we are not necessarily emotionally moved by putting Jew and Gentile together. We go, okay, that's nice, Jew and Gentile. But in the first century, to hear those words, Jew and Gentile now together, was staggering, scandalous. And what Paul says is that the gospel is not simply about your private relationship with God. The gospel is now about a new family, a new humanity, a new community. This is why our definition of the gospel is so important. It's often so easy to believe that the gospel is about only my relationship with God, but you could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is a new humanity that's being created in the name of Jesus. The cross is not simply a bridge that gets us to God. You've received those tracks, haven't you? Someone's on the subway giving you the tracks, and on the track you read it, and it's God on one side, sinful humanity on the other. There's this massive chasm, and then the cross is plopped in the middle. Basically letting us know that it is the cross that gets us to God. And so you walk across the cross. And, 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 then, and then I always wonder, how do you get on top? You know what I'm saying? Because I mean, did he have a ladder? It seems pretty difficult to do that. But that's just one aspect of the gospel. Because the cross is not simply a bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer that tears down walls that separate us. That's the gospel. I think about seeing this in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Growing up, I would take my clothes to get dry cleaned at this Korean-owned dry cleaner spot on Pickin Avenue and Essex Street. And in order to get the clothes over to the person working behind the counter, there was this massive bulletproof partition with like a contraption you had to walk through, you had to do a cartwheel and then give them the clothes and then they would give it back to you a few days later. But there was always this massive kind of barrier between the customer and the person working behind the counter. I went to this place for many, many, many years. One day after becoming a follower of Jesus, I brought in some dry cleaning stuff, they needed some clothes that needed to be dry cleaned and when I walked in, I noticed that the partition was removed. So I walk in thinking I'm probably at the wrong place. I go back out. It's the same owner. I walk back in, and I start having a conversation with the person behind the counter for the first time. It was the first time that I was able to shake the hand of someone from behind the counter. And I would uh, discover that this person was a follower of Jesus. First of all, the fish gave it away. He had the big fish in the back of his thing there. And we started having a conversation about why he took down the barrier. And his very simple remark to me was, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
and we want to build trust with our neighbors. That the barrier came down. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's a nice dry cleaning story, but at that moment there, it was a sign of the gospel breaking through. That the gospel is not simply about my relationship with God. The gospel is about our relationship with one another. This is why New Life Fellowship Church, this is hard work to have a church with so many different nationalities and so many different cultures and so many different ethnicities, but we are getting a sign of the gospel at work in our community. Well, as we are working to figure out what it means to love one another, what does it mean to negotiate our differences, what does it mean to come to the table, although we're coming from different perspectives, the, God, the power of God is at work. And this is hard work, but it is the gospel that gives us the energy and the gospel that gives us the strength and the gospel that gives us the ability to become a new family. And that's the primary fruit of the gospel. You can argue a new family is created in the name of Jesus. And then fourthly, what is the gospel about? What does the gospel do? The gospel, Paul says, reveals God's righteousness. The gospel is about the son. The gospel is what saves the world. The gospel creates a new humanity. The gospel is about the righteousness of God. Now, the word righteousness, there's, that, that's a word that packs in so much into that one word. The righteousness of God is, is the way that God makes things right in the world. The way that God makes things right in your family. The way that God makes things right in our world. The way that God makes things right between us and our relationship with God. The righteousness of God is the way that God makes the world right. And one uh, New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, he mentions that the word righteousness there, if you look at the Old Testament and all of the ways, the connotations of that word, if you want to summarize it, you could summarize righteousness as God's covenant loyalty to his people, which is wonderful news. Wonderful news. In the Old Testament, God had multiple covenants with the people of God. And a covenant was God saying, I will agree to do X, Y, and Z. And you, on the other side of the relationship, you agree to do X, Y, and Z. And we have a wonderful covenant together. And God said, I'll do my part, you do your part. But over and over again in the scriptures, after they sign off, the people of God say, where do I sign? Yes, they sign. Two minutes later. They're in all kinds of rebellion, worshiping all the other gods, worshiping all of the idols. They just agreed to hold up their side of the bargain. And the people of God turned their backs on God over and over and over again. And what does God do? I love, number one, that God shows some emotion in the Old Testament. He's like, why did I make these people? I should have never made these people in the first place. But ultimately, what does God do? God remains loyal to the covenant. Aren't you glad that a relationship with God, that the love of God to you is not built on how you perform? Aren't you glad that God's love to you is not based on how much Bible you've memorized? Aren't you glad that the grace of God towards your life, the mercy of God towards your life, the commitment of God towards your life is not predicated on how much faith you have? Aren't you glad that the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God is not contingent upon you 
It's contingent upon God. God is good, not because we're good first. God is good because God is good. God is merciful because God is merciful. God is faithful because God is faithful. And this is the good news of God's righteousness, that he makes the world right based on what he does. And within that word righteousness, what these, these theologians have helped me to see is everything is, uh, the full package of God's saving acts are in that word righteousness. You get the forgiveness of sins, praise God. The Bible says, new, his mercies are new every single morning. For those of you carrying guilt and shame for the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you, the good news of the gospel is you can live free in the name of Jesus. Forgiveness and grace for you in the name of Jesus. You get justified in his name. To be justified is to be declared righteous based on what Christ has done, not because of what you do. Based on his performance, not your performance. Based on his righteousness, not your righteousness. Based on his great work, not your works. You are justified in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. You get the Holy Spirit, praise God. You get all that God wants you to get because of his covenant loyalty. And so what does this require of us? Paul makes it plain now in verse 17. The gospel is about the son. The gospel is what saves the world. You're looking for salvation somewhere and God longs to rescue you with his saving love. The gospel is what makes a new humanity. That this thing is not about me and God, it's about us together. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What, what's our part now? What's our response? Paul says, faith faith the righteous will live by faith now this is where we get tripped up because the way that we often understand faith we put and I know I've done this plenty of times I put the emphasis of faith on my ability to believe what do I have faith in faith in my ability to believe and when your faith when the object of your faith is your ability to believe, oh, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Why? Because every week my faith goes up and down. My ability to believe, there's some, you know, it's really easy to believe God on Sunday, isn't it? It's like, oh, praise God, I believe you, Lord, I trust you. Wow, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Monday comes, you're not going to do it. What's going to happen now? When Paul says, that the righteous shall live by faith. He's not talking about our ability to believe. What is the object of our faith? The object of our faith is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is the object of our faith. Not your ability to believe. The object of our faith is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel story puts Jesus in his right place and puts us in our right place. Because the truth of my life is, I often, I can't. But the good news is God can. I fail, good news, but God forgives. I struggle, but praise God, God saves. 
I doubt, but praise God, God is gracious. I sin, but God shows mercy. In other words, this thing is built on Jesus Christ. And there's an image that's helped me to see this over many years. When you go to New York City in the Manhattan and Rockefeller Center, there's this image of Atlas who holds the world on his shoulders. And many of us, when we think about the spiritual life, we, fight, we feel like Atlas, holding the weight of the world on our shoulders, being crushed under the weight of the world. You thinking, I have to have a perfect life. I can't mess up. Thinking that your salvation is based on you. And like Atlas, we are crushed by the burdens of the world. We are crushed by the injustice of the world. We are crushed by our own inconsistency. We're crushed by our own shame, our own inability to believe. And like Atlas, we have the world on our shoulders. But what's fascinating about this image is that Atlas is facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there is this wonderful juxtaposition where Atlas carrying the world on his shoulders is facing St. Patrick's Cathedral, but there's something even more wonderful than this. Because behind the altar in St. Patrick's Cathedral, while Atlas is holding the weight of the world on his shoulders, there's another statue of the boy Jesus holding the world in his hands. <laughs> Kindergarten Jesus. <laughs> Chicken nugget eating Jesus. <laughs> Juice box sipping Jesus. Disney Junior watching Jesus. Effortlessly holding the world in his hands. This is why Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do you know what's holding your life together? Jesus. Do you know what's holding this world together? Jesus. Do you know what's going to rescue the world ultimately? It's Jesus. Do you know who's going to bring justice to the world? It's Jesus. Do you know who's going to heal the land? It is Jesus. Do you know who can heal your body? It is Jesus. Do you know who can restore your relationships? It is Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And what are we invited into? Not trusting in our ability to believe, but trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's why we gather as the people of God, to be reminded week after week that God is faithful. To be reminded week after week that God loves you with an everlasting love. To remind you week after week that God is with you, that God is for you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? Every week we come as the people of God to be reminded that God is mighty, that he is powerful, that he is king, that he is Lord. And we're here today, friends. Some of you came to church discouraged. Some of you came to church doubting. 
Some of you came to church struggling. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. With you and for you. There's a guy named Will Willimon, a Methodist preacher, who said, if he can summarize the gospel in seven words, it will be this. God refuses to be God without us. God refuses to be God without us. That's how much he is committed to us. Committed to you. Committed to saving the world. And what is the invitation of the gospel? To trust in Jesus' ability to save you, to heal the world, to fill you with new purpose, to make you into a new creation, to take sin and cover it with grace, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen. 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 Let me invite you to close your eyes. Let's have the worship team come forward. Jesus Christ is our good news. His saving love is our good news. And I wonder today, what have you been trusting in? I wonder, what have you put your faith in today? As we gather together, we're reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus, the covenant loyalty of Jesus Christ. He invites us to turn. What does it mean to turn from our sin? It means to turn from a way of living life that's oriented around ourselves and to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus, thank you for your gospel, for it is good news about you, about your saving power, about the ways that you make all things new. And so on this day, may we get a fresh impartation, a fresh revelation of this gospel, and may it fill our heart with trust and faith and confidence that you see every detail of our lives. You know every aspect of our existence and you long to bring saving power to it. And so what can we do, Lord, right now? Sing to you. Offer words of hope, words of gratitude, words of worship. And so, Lord, would you receive our song and our singing as an offering, an offering of gratitude, knowing that you are the God who rescues and saves and delivers. And so we sing to you now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, let's all stand and let's sing in response together. You were the one at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most Yeah.
So as we close, I want to have our prayer team come to my, to my right, to your left. Here's what I know about our lives. It's very easy to fixate our attention and to fixate for our attention on so many other things than the faithfulness of Jesus. It's so easy to look at our circumstances and go, there is no hope for this. And you know what? With human beings, there might be no hope. But with God, the God who can do the impossible, there is hope. Our trust is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his love for us, his grace towards us, his mercy. God is with you. God loves you. God is for you. God invites you to turn to him, to put your weight and your energy on him. And not in your own abilities and your faith and all of that stuff there. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we just need someone to pray for us, to remind us of that truth, to place our hands on our shoulders, their hands on our shoulders and say, God is with you. God loves you. You've been trusting in your own strength for far too long. You've been trusting in your own ability to make your life happy and full of joy and peace. But it's only Jesus Christ who can rescue you. And so for whatever need you have, our prayer team would love to pray for you. And maybe you came to church today, maybe you're watching online, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never said, you know what, I'm tired of putting the emphasis of my life on my own ability to achieve, to consume, to experience. I want to put my life in the hands of Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to trust him. And you can come up forward to our prayer team. We'd love to pray for you about that. You can also scan that QR code. If, you, if you're sensing today that God is inviting you into a relationship with Jesus, into following him, into having him and recognizing him as Lord over the world, as Lord over your own life, a savior, as healer. You can scan that code. You can come up here. Maybe you came into church today and you have made a decision for Jesus like that, but you've never been baptized. Baptism being one of the most beautiful signs that you belong to Jesus Christ. And today, maybe you're saying, I've never done that today and I want to take the next step and be baptized. Let us help you on your journey of following Jesus. And we're here to serve you, to put your hope in and faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so as we close, you can come up for prayer after this closing blessing and however the Lord leads you. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end every gathering in this posture of receiving. Why? Because the world is filled with so much cursing. And maybe there have been curses spoke over your own life 
harsh words spoken over your own life. And we leave this gathering, this gathering knowing that the blessing of God in Christ rests on you. But it's not just so that you can receive it, it's so that you can offer it to the world around you as well. The blessing that comes in the name of Jesus. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and to fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, putting your confidence in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. May you experience transformation and healing and hope this week. May peace and joy fill your life. And may you offer that to the world around you. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.